listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. Did Jesus endorse the use of weapons? Did Jesus endorse the use of weapons? What about slavery? Does the Bible promote the idea of slavery? Does the Bible endorse slavery? Very important to ask these questions because the conclusions that you reach determine your opinion about what you should do, what I should do, what a Christ follower should do in regard to the use of weapons and the idea of slavery. Does Jesus, in his teachings, endorse the use of weapons? Does the Bible promote and endorse slavery? Now, we're going to look at what the Word of God says about these topics, and this is one of the advantages of just going through what the Bible teaches, because eventually we get to all the issues that we could face in the course of life by looking at the full counsel of what the Bible teaches, not being a member of the Nighttime Bible Reading Society. You might be saying to yourself, what is the Nighttime Bible Reading Society? We'll get there. You'll understand what it is, you'll know whether or not you're a member and whether or not you need to run like crazy away from being a member of the Nighttime Bible Reading Society. So where we're going to look at today is the Gospel of Luke. We're going to look at the Gospel of Luke, continue in the Word of God here in chapter 22, beginning in verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus using Isaiah 53, verse 12, Isaiah 53, 12, to apply to himself. Now, Jesus is either out of his mind and blasphemous to apply an Old Testament scripture to himself, or he's right on target, and you know where I land on that issue. You should land on that same place that all of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, points to Jesus And therefore, Jesus is correct in using this passage of Scripture in reference to himself. Look at what he says. For I tell you that this Scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has come. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Or, aive. Aive. We'll understand that that is probably the right nuance, the right sense of Jesus' response to the density of the disciples after Jesus is talking about a sword. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, a particular place in the Mount of Olives, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Temptation. Again, Jesus concerning himself, helping the disciples understand the importance of temptation. There are things out there 
We have our own sinful nature to deal with on the inside and then on the outside. Many things that present themselves in the course of our lives as we're minding our own business, let alone adding insult to injury and looking for something. Temptation is a reality in the lives of the disciples in Jesus' day, and he's warning them, telling them, pray that you don't fall into temptation. And Jesus is warning us today. One of the primary things that we have to face as followers of Jesus, as Christ followers, is the reality of temptation everywhere we look. And it's serious, it's significant. And Jesus wants you to be alert. He wants me to be alert. If you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to be concerned about temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. Look at verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. We covered this in our last time together, so I'm not going to repeat some of the things that we talked about last time. I encourage you to listen to that message, listen to it again. But this section of scripture is so significant and so important, we need to delve in more deeply. And even then, we won't exhaust it. Verse 45, and when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Again, Jesus warning the disciples about the reality of temptation, urging them, prompting them, and if they only knew what was on the immediate horizon, perhaps they would have been better prepared. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, There came a crowd, and the man called Judas. Look at the identification of how Luke talks about Judas now. Now he's the man called Judas, one of the 12. He had been an apostle, and now the transition is taking place. We're seeing a metamorphosis of Judas. Now he's being referred to as the man Judas. And it's an important reminder for you and for me. We can get off to a great start, but it's how we finish that really matters. It's important that you finish strong in Christ, that I finish strong in Christ because that's what we remember. That's what people remember about us. Anybody can get off to a good start, but it's finishing strong that really matters in the final analysis. And here we see a transition in the life of Judas in the midst of this passage that is all about transition. It's about a transition in the life and the ministry of Jesus, and you'll understand that more by the time we're done as well. The man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Now, this is important. The question is asked by somebody, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Now, when you're referring to Jesus as Lord, the idea is that he is master, he's ruler, he's the one who's in charge. So it's possible, as we see here, to call Jesus Lord, but not to live for Jesus as Lord because they don't wait for the Lord's response. The density of the disciples is obvious. Look what they say here. Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. We know that this is Malchus. 
We know that his right ear was cut off. If we look at John chapter 18, we see the specificity that this is not allegory. This really happened. And we know that Jesus' response is right here. Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who would come out against him, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? But I was with you day after day in the temple. You did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. Now, you all come back now, you hear? Because next time together, we'll talk about Peter and the drama that unfolds in his life and how Jesus handles what Peter was warned he would do, whether or not Peter makes a comeback from all of that. But I want you to take note of something because it could happen in your life. It could happen in mine. In fact, it's happened in your life. It might be happening in your life. It's happened in my life. It's possible to call Jesus Lord, Lord, and not live for him as the Lord you're confessing. Look what happens here, right here in chapter 22, verse 49. When those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant. They don't wait for Jesus' response. We might be reading this passage of Scripture in a very different way. If only they had done one thing, and after asking the Lord for his opinion, actually waited for the opinion of the Lord. It's very possible that you could confess and profess the longer we know Jesus as our Savior, the more we can struggle with his lordship over our lives. It's very possible to begin to take for granted and to begin to refer to him as Lord, but not wait for his lordship in our lives. Many people have married somebody they really shouldn't have married, and yet God is able to work that for good. You need to be committed to your commitment. It's not so much as being committed to your spouse as much as being committed to the God whom you promise to honor and serve in the course of your marriage. Many people have made erroneous business decisions, gotten themselves into trouble, gotten involved in relationships, spent money for nothing other than asking the Lord to bless them without waiting for God's direction. It's all about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If you're going to be a disciple who follows Jesus Christ, you've got to not only call him Lord, but you've got to submit yourself to his Lordship, his mastery over every single area of your life. And oh, if they had only waited to give Jesus the opportunity to respond while they were calling him Lord, Maybe the use of that sword in the first place would not have even come into play. Be very careful in your process of following Jesus Christ, that you really are following Jesus Christ. There should be the growing reality in your life as you mature. Otherwise, I'm just getting older. There should be the reality in your life that as you age, as you've known Jesus for more and more time, it becomes obvious to others around that the decisions that you're making are more centered upon the lordship of Jesus. Sometimes you'll see somebody who's been a believer for a very long time, and then they do something, and you 
scratch your head. And even though it might be permissible, even though it might be allowed, it does not necessarily mean that it is beneficial or that it was based upon the lordship of Jesus Christ. See, God gives us freedom to make choices. God allows us to make decisions in the course of our life. Our gift of worship to God has everything to do with whether or not the choices that we make, the decisions that we make, really reflect a submission to him as the master and the Lord of our lives. And so ask yourself that question in the process of making a decision in your own life. If I do, and then fill in the blank, is whatever decision I make truly based upon the lordship of Jesus, submission to him for his glory and for his agenda, or am I simply taking license to do something that he might allow, that he might permit, but is not necessarily for his greatest possible good, his greatest possible glory? Yes, God has given you the ability to choose. He has given me the ability to choose, the responsibility to choose, the responsibility to make decisions that are based upon his lordship. See, what's happening in this passage, this is a passage about transitions. And even though there's weaponry mentioned here, we have to ask ourselves this question. Does this passage demonstrate that Jesus is for the use of weapons in the midst of adverse situations? We're living in a society today where the modern equivalent of the sword would be the sidearm, the six-shooter. And there are all kinds of debates, depending on what state you live in, and then within that state, uh, whether or not people should be able to open carry or conceal carry, here we see the apostles, to some degree, open carrying a sword. They're openly discussing it with Jesus. Look, Lord, here are two swords. And interestingly enough, Jesus somehow allowed at least one of them. We find out later on in John chapter 18 that it was Peter, ironically. Peter, 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 Peter. You don't think Jesus knew that Peter had a sword with him, whether he opened, carried, or concealed, carried? But the modern equivalent today, we don't walk around with swords, but we might walk around with a firearm, or we might have a concealed carry permit. So we have to ask ourselves a question, does this passage speak to that issue? Is Jesus openly endorsing the use of weaponry, the use of violence? Let's close in prayer, and we'll continue next week. Let's zero in instead. Verses 35 through 38. He said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. Jesus is bringing to their remembrance Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 10. Look with me at Luke chapter 9 first. In Luke chapter 9, we have this passage of scripture, verses 1 through 6, that Jesus is referencing here in Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 1 of Luke chapter 9. He called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. So understand what Jesus is doing here, what Jesus did. Not too distant future that the remaining 
apostles were remembering. They were recollecting this because Jesus tells them, listen, when I sent you out, this is that time that Jesus was speaking about. And he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And so here we understand the mission of the apostles is the mission of Jesus. They were given, the apostles were given the power to heal because they, the people needed to see whether or not these people were of that same spirit, whether or not they were endorsed by Jesus. And so the supernatural ability given to the 12 apostles, including Judas, how's that for an interesting caveat? The ability of the apostles to heal and to cast out demons was necessary. It was important so that those who saw the healing, those who saw the demons being cast out would know that Jesus had sent them and that they were sent from Jesus and that the mission of Jesus was now being expanded and we're seeing replication. We're seeing expansion. So it was important for the people to see that they were the ones sitting under the teaching of Jesus that Jesus had sent them and that they were authorized by Jesus because they were now doing the same things that Jesus had been doing, okay? So this is what we see in Luke chapter 9. They were sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. In verse 3, he said to them, taking nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. Now, pay attention to this, because there's a whole lot of gobbledygook going on today, purported by the people who are members of the Nighttime Bible Reading Society, who say that Jesus never judged. He did judge. And here's an example. Verse 4, whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Listen, if you are going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, the very nature of being a follower of Jesus Christ means that you're going to preach what Jesus taught. You're going to teach what Jesus taught. You're going to embrace and follow what Jesus taught. Some people are going to like that. Other people are not going to like that. And what Jesus says is that if people don't like my teaching, they don't like me, and you are to take Take off your sandal when you leave that town and shake it out, even the dust. That is a judgment. That is a testimony against those people that they have a wrong view of Jesus. They've rejected his teaching, and Jesus definitely did judge. You will be a judger by default. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to follow his teaching. Which teachings? All of the teachings of Jesus, not select passages. That's what members of the nighttime Bible reading society do. They read the Bible at night, lights off, sunglasses on, and one eye closed. And when you read the Bible at night, lights off, sunglasses on, and one eye closed, you cherry pick certain portions of Jesus' teaching, certain aspects of Jesus' life and ministry, and you begin to recreate Jesus in your own image. You begin to recreate God in your own image. And one of the things that's happened is that we have this faulty, erroneous view 
within the church that Jesus didn't judge. This is Jesus, and this is the followers of Jesus actually judging those who reject his teaching. You cannot follow Jesus without following the teachings of Jesus. You have to, by default. That's the way it goes. And the best way to follow all the teachings of Jesus is to become familiar with all of the Bible. If you want to quote the Bible, make sure you know the Bible you want to quote. Many people have wound up looking foolish They look ignorant and arrogant because they're only quoting certain portions of the Bible and in the process, recreating God in their own image. If you want to quote the Bible, make sure you know the Bible you want to quote. More so. How about knowing the God of the Bible? So that when you quote the Bible that you know, you're actually conveying a real, accurate picture of Jesus. Look with me at Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. So Jesus has sent out the 12 to proclaim the gospel, to teach the teachings that Jesus has taught with them. That's what a disciple does. And by nature, if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to proclaim his teaching. And that by nature means you're going to judge. Chapter 10 of Luke's gospel, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. This is like a John the Baptist moment where John the Baptist went ahead of Jesus. Now the 72, in addition to the 12, they're being sent out to do what? To proclaim the message of Jesus. This is replication, and this is the expansion of Jesus' ministry. So there are 72 who are sent. Verse 2, and he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Wait a second. What happened to the hospitality here, Jesus? It's not that Jesus is being inhospitable or telling the apostles or the, telling the 72 to be inhospitable as much as we see Jesus with, an, with a resolution to stay true to his mission and his vision and his purpose, his ministry. And likewise, a follower of Jesus must stay true to the mission of Jesus regardless of what other people might think if you lose sight of the mission of a Christ follower, which is to proclaim the full counsel of God and to live the full counsel of God when other people oppose you, when there's a little bit of persecution, you will back down when you otherwise should be standing firm. And what Jesus is trying to help the 72 understand is that, listen, this is serious stuff. There are people who are going to oppose you. I'm sending you out with my word and my truth, and yet it's a hostile world out there. They're going to be hostile to me. They're going to be hostile to you. And when he sends them out, he says, go on your way, verse three, behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him, but if not, it will return to you. 
and remain in the same house eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. You see, God is sending the 72 so that the kingdom of God is advanced. But not everybody wants to hear the kingdom of God. And by nature, by default... Can we please get over this with humble courage as followers of Jesus Christ? By default, if you buy into the mission of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, you have to, by nature, be a judger of their behavior. No, we don't have to deal with hatred and an arrogant attitude, which we need to repent of because we've often done it that way with a holier-than-thou attitude. That is not godly, it's not biblical, it's not humble. But the other extreme is to back off it totally and to compromise on what God has called you to do as a follower of Jesus. He has not called you and me simply to receive Jesus as Savior, as our personal Savior, and take all the personal benefit. He has sent you to take the truth of the gospel that you embrace, that changed your life, and then go tell that to other people. People will reject it. It's part of being a disciple. The nature of following Jesus means, by definition, you must, by just showing up, judge other people. More so, it's actually God judging them through your very presence and speaking the truth. Look at what Jesus says here in Luke chapter 10, verse 10. But... Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. That by nature is judgment. Preaching the truth of God means judging people who are not interested in the truth of God. It comes with the territory. I don't like it any more than you like it maybe perhaps less than you like it because I have to say it oftentimes on a public platform that then goes on the radio, goes into podcasts, and then people share it and listen to portions and not the whole big picture. There are people today who will accuse you of being a hater and they will talk about tolerance. Everybody wants to talk about tolerance and love until you disagree with them. And then they become very intolerant You must remember that they loved Jesus until he said something that they didn't like. They gnashed their teeth at him, and in fact, it's the reason, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, why they nailed him to the cross. And so the next time somebody accuses you of being a hater because you're simply standing for the truth, you have to remember that if they have a problem with you standing for the truth and the full counsel of what the Bible teaches... They really have a problem with God. Because it can be said, and don't anybody take this out of context because it needs to be in its full context. The reality is that God himself is a hater. He hates sin, your sin and mine. 
He demonstrated that by hanging on the cross. If sin was not a big deal and God didn't hate it, he would not have sent his one and only uniquely brought forth son to pay that kind of a penalty, to pour himself out totally, to die on a cross if there was not an absolute contempt and hatred for sin. God hates sin so much that he paid for that sin that he hates. And yet God loves the sinner. On the cross, we see, again, God's definitive statement, simultaneously his hatred for sin and his love for the sinner. So we have to get over it by default. People are going to think that you hate them, so be especially clear that you love them while you're talking about the sin that they might be guilty of. Help them understand your story, too, that you, too, are a sinner. The only difference is the grace of God, the undeserved favor of God, that you were forgiven by accepting God's provision of Jesus on the cross. That's why we can't be self-righteous in proclaiming the gospel. There is no self-righteousness. Look what Jesus says here in Luke 10, verse 11. Even the dust of your town that clings to your feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Jesus is warning them ahead of time. You're going to preach the truth. I'm going to give you miraculous power to confirm that you're of me and that I sent you. And in spite of all that, people are going to reject you. But nevertheless, like it or not, the kingdom of God is going to advance. And that's God. God's calling on your life as a Christ follower not to preach the gospel and teach the gospel conditioned upon people standing up and applauding or the response of people on one extreme or the other. We preach the gospel. We are obedient to Jesus Christ to fulfill the mission of God under the anointing of the Holy Spirit regardless of how people may receive it or reject it. It makes no difference if you wait for the approval of people to preach the gospel and to live for Jesus, you will not preach the gospel and live for Jesus. If we are waiting for people in this nation who are not interested in God, who hate God, and who are intolerant of his teaching, to all of a sudden have an epiphany and to begin to coddle us and be friendly to us, you don't understand the spirit of which you are as a follower of Jesus Christ. God has not called us to win a popularity contest. God has called followers of Jesus to preach the truth, to live the truth, to tell people from Genesis to Revelation about the real Jesus, the biblical Jesus, everything that Jesus taught. And some people will accept the real Jesus, some people will reject the real Jesus, and they will replace him with a Jesus created in their own image because they're members of the nighttime Bible reading society. Reading the Bible at night, lights off, sunglasses on, one eye closed, taking select passages and recreating Jesus in their own image. Jesus says, go. A disciple goes and teaches other people with their lifestyle, with their words, the full counsel of what Jesus taught. And some people will accept it. And some people in accepting the gospel and in accepting Jesus will accept you. And others will reject it. And by rejecting it, they're rejecting Jesus and they're rejecting you. If you wait to be popular as a Christian and that attitude is killing the church, 
in the United States of America. If you wait to be popular as a Christian, you're not reading the Bible that God gave us as Christians. It's not about being popular. It's about being faithful to Jesus. And this is one of the reasons why we have problems in our families because the parents want to teach the true word of God and the children want to, want to cherry pick because they've been taught in the schools to cherry pick and they've redefined God in their own image. Parents, you don't back down on the truth of God's word that you know more than your 15-year-old or your 16-year-old or your 17-year-old. And parents, if you need to repent because you have not been following Jesus and you've been hypocritical by trying to get your children to follow what Jesus you're not following. The good news is that today ends at midnight. The mercies of the Lord are new every morning. It's a great time to repent, follow Jesus, and let your children see the new you by the power of the Holy Spirit. But listen, you don't have to be morally perfect to address an immoral behavior or an immoral action. There are people in the world who say, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You're a sinner too. That's the whole point. That in humility, God would use you and me, imperfect people, to proclaim a perfect God. Get over it. Get over it. And stop waiting for the world to make you popular if you haven't noticed, Christianity is increasingly unpopular in the United States of America, and it's going to continue to get worse. The difficulty and the hardship that we're seeing in our nation is nothing compared to what other Christians in other countries are now experiencing. And it's nothing compared to what's on the horizon if we read our Bibles, all of the Bible as we await the return of Jesus. Now, one more thing here. Verse 12 of Luke chapter 10, Jesus says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day for Sodom than for that town. Jesus actually believed that there was a literal place called Sodom and the behavior of the people was not glorifying to God. It's not an allegorical story, it's a real story. If you got a problem with God judging Sodom, then you have a problem with Jesus judging Sodom. Because Jesus is demonstrating his agreement that the destruction of Sodom was appropriate for the behavior of the people. Sodom was a real place that was truly judged for their behavior which dishonored God. And that judgment was coming even before Lot got there. Now, hear this very loudly, very clearly. God, that same God who judges, the same God who destroyed Sodom, does not delight in the destruction of people, and neither should you. Drives me almost nutty. When I see somebody on Facebook, they did it on my Facebook page, talking about Jesus to somebody who had recreated Jesus in their own mind. Wasn't a biblical Jesus. And the Christian rebuking them and saying, I hope you repent and turn before God judges you and sends you into an eternity apart from him. How shameful, how heartless, how cold, how calloused, how obvious it is that you are not being filled with the Holy Spirit because God doesn't judge a single person without being heartbroken over their judgment. 
We should be broken over the lost state of other people who don't have what you have and what I have by none of our own doing. You had nothing to do with your salvation. I have nothing to do with my salvation. It is a gift from God so that nobody can boast. The only boasting is from God Almighty. But make no mistake about it, Jesus did judge. And he's demonstrating agreement with the judgment of his father over a place called Sodom whose behavior was not glorifying. And Jesus is saying it's going to be more bearable for Sodom on the day of real judgment, the eternal judgment that they did not yet experience when the fire and the brimstone rained down on them. It's going to be more bearable for Sodom than for those people who reject you, the 72. And so by nature of being a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, you are by default judging the behavior of other people, even as you let God judge your own behavior. It's part of what should be keeping us humble. That when we preach the gospel, when we tell people about the biblical Jesus, we do it with tremendous humility, knowing that you're a favored son or a favored daughter by the will of God, not by your own will. That God chose you. Remember, Jesus told the disciples, remember, you did not choose me. I chose you. And then Jesus says, I chose you to bear fruit. And the way fruit is born is by telling people the full story about the biblical Jesus, not being a member of the nighttime Bible reading society and recreating God in your own image. See, what you need to understand about Luke chapter 22 is that this is not so much about the use of weapons as much as the use of discernment. This is a transition passage, Luke 22. This is not so much about the use of weapons as much as it is about the use of discernment. Jesus wants these dull disciples to understand that my violent death is nearer now than at any other time in my three years or so with you. My violent death is nearer now than at any other time. This is why he says... Remember, I sent you out with no money bag, no backpack. Did you lack anything? We lack nothing. But now things have changed. My violent death is right on the horizon. That's why he's talking about a sword. And how do we know that the disciples were dull and didn't grasp it? Because when they say, look, Lord, here are two swords. Jesus says, ay, they, it's enough. Don't you understand After all this time, and then he reinforces that. We see the reinforcing of that later in Luke 22, verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And a man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? 
And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this, touched his ear, and it was healed. Perfect opportunity for Jesus to give a little bit of a commentary on the use of a sword, the non-use of a sword. See, this passage cannot be used to support the idea of weaponry or to condemn the idea of weaponry because the main point of this passage is that the violent overthrow of Jesus, the violent death of Jesus is now closer than it was at any other time in his life and his ministry. And he's trying to help them discern. It's not about the use of weapons as much as it is about the use of discernment. He wants the disciples to understand that his violent death has now come. The time of his violent death, the transition to him going to the cross is now fulfilled. That's why he quotes Isaiah 53, verse 12. And this is why we read in Luke chapter 22, verse 54, then they seized him and led him away. Prior to this, nobody could get their hands on Jesus. But now, this is a fundamentally different thing in the life of Jesus, they lead him away. They had seen Jesus get away on several instances. They had seen Jesus stupefy and mesmerize everybody. They knew that he could have done that. Perhaps Peter had enough to rescue Jesus. And here we need to understand what's happening here. Peter was actually in jeopardy of interfering with Jesus' offense. There's a difference between using a weapon for defense versus using it for offense. Jesus was on the offense here. It was Jesus' decision to give himself, not to be taken against his will. It was Jesus' strategy. He could have just left gotten away, walked up and over the Mount of Olives into the wilderness area and escaped as many who were condemned by the Romans did to flee and to escape punishment by the Romans, death by the Romans. But Jesus, it was his strategy. Jesus was on the offense, not his oppressors. It wasn't their strategy. They were actually falling into the very strategy of God. And Peter was actually using a weapon on an offensive maneuver that God did not call him to do. Now, I would be all for the eradication of firearms and weaponry of every single kind. And you should be, and you would be too, if you understand that one day when Jesus returns, we will beat our swords into plowshares. So if you're against weaponry and you're against violence, then you've got to be for Jesus because Jesus is totally against violence and totally against weaponry, so much so that one day he'll take care of it all. But in the meantime, as we live outside of Eden in a fallen world, you need to remember that those who forget history are destined to repeat it. If we could only get human nature out of the equation, see, it's not the weapon that is guilty. It's not the firearm that's guilty for being misused or abused. It is the person who uses the weapon and uses the firearm who either uses it for defensive purposes or offensive purposes. 
If we could take the human element out of it, if we could take the computer element out of it, that a computer is going to decide who has a, a weapon or not, or a robotic element out of it, that there's no artificial intelligence involved, that'd be fine. But I do get very concerned. There is a matter of common sense. This is one of the reasons why the United States has the Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms because they knew what happened historically when somebody was in power who was the only person, him and his henchmen, the king, who had weaponry. When an evil person or a mere mortal is the only person who has the weaponry, along with his henchmen, you can end up with a very serious, very dangerous situation. And that's why the Second Amendment is there in the United States Constitution to keep the potential of a tyrannical leader and a tyrannical government in check so that everybody is on an equal playing field. That is the spirit behind why the Second Amendment is there. Now, you might not be convinced of that. I want to remind you of Adolf Hitler. You might not be familiar with Adolf Hitler. Before he came to power, one of the first things he did before he really came to power was he villainized guns. And he made sure that all of the people gave up their guns in the name of safety, in the name of protection. And once those guns were confiscated, once those people who were not misusing those firearms were villainized successfully by the propaganda, then Hitler had a corner on the market, and then he really went to town. And the rest, as they say, is history. And so a little bit of common sense when it comes to the defense against those who could be oppressive, who conveniently are the ones making the decisions and owning the firearms and the weaponry that those decisions entitle them only to have. Remember, those who forget history are destined to repeat it. There is such a thing as having common sense when it comes to understanding the tyrannical capability of a government or a leader within the government using whatever it might be for ulterior, dastardly, devilish means. And since we cannot take the sinister and the devilish out of the equation, we need to, in all humility and all honesty, make sure that we don't look at a passage like Luke 22 and say that it either endorses the use of weaponry or it speaks against the use of weaponry. It's not about a sword. It's not about weaponry. It's about Jesus helping them have some discernment that now my violent death is closer than it ever was before. That's why he's using the violent imagery. And that's why he's saying, it's enough. You don't understand. And then he's taken away. And the end is closer than ever. Or I should say, the beginning is closer than ever. So this passage is a transition in the life and the ministry of Jesus, and Jesus is trying to help them not be dull as disciples, but to be diligent. Don't fall into temptation. Pray that you don't fall into temptation. Things are going to change for me. They're going to change for you. And in a very similar way, our nation is actually facing 
a significant transition as well. There was a day when Christianity was looked upon in this nation as a favorable thing. Bible literacy was considered to be a wonderful thing, a good thing, a godly thing, a beneficial thing for moralists everywhere. But now, to adhere to the Bible, you're considered to be narrow-minded and stupid and intolerant. We've already covered the tolerance issue. If God has called you to follow Jesus and to preach and teach and to adhere to the teachings of Jesus by nature, by default, you're going to judge your own actions and the actions of anybody that you want to tell Jesus about. So get over it. But in our nation, it's now become fashionable to be a hater of Christians, a hater of those who believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. And if you don't believe that, go on my Facebook page. Go on your own Facebook page and say something about Jesus and see how quickly those who are talking against hatred and those who want tolerance immediately become hateful and intolerant. They want to preach tolerance provided you agree with them. They want to preach about love and talk about love provided you don't talk about the Jesus of the Bible. And so it's important to understand that we're in this transition today. We are living in a world of transition. And there are people today, they'll bring up a multiplicity of arguments. Well, the Bible talks about people being raped, and it does. Well, the Bible talks about people doing other things to other people that shouldn't be done. You have to understand that the Bible is not afraid to record and to convey what actually occurred in history. Simply because it's recording what occurred in history does not mean that God is endorsing that behavior. And one of the biggest examples is the example of slavery. There are people who have used the Bible to support the idea of slavery, and there are people who have used the Bible to condemn the idea of slavery. So who is right and who is wrong? I would suggest that those who have used the Bible to endorse the idea of slavery did so and would do so because they are members of the nighttime Bible reading society. They do not know what the full counsel of Scripture is on God's definitive statement on slavery, that he, in fact, hates it. But I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to see from the Word of God, to look at the Word of God. Look with me at the book of Ephesians in chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, Paul is addressing the behavior of parents, the behavior of children, as he often does in his letters. He's addressing all kinds of people and bringing the gospel to bear on whatever circumstances people might find themselves in. Remember, the Bible is not exhaustive, but it is accurate on what it discusses. And here's a perfect example of, that, of this. Here, Paul is talking to the Ephesians who lived with a government that practiced slavery. And so Paul is not so much as making a political statement to address the political issue of slavery and the anathema that it was, the terrible thing that it was, as much as he was trying to do what he always did, to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is not a thing, it's a person. His name is Jesus. And so what Paul is doing is trying to speak to slaves and masters and parents and children, people of all walks of life, to live for Christ, to keep the main thing the main thing, which is to live for Christ, regardless of the circumstance you may find yourself in the midst of. So understand that context, and here we read Ephesians 6, verse 5. 
Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. The slave needed to understand that God saw their behavior and the best way for a Christian slave to convince his ungodly or abusive master that the gospel is real and that Jesus is alive is to see them living for Jesus in the midst of circumstances that were counterintuitive. Why are you treating me nicely when I'm treating you so wickedly? Why? How is that possible? Because you need to see, the slaves needed to see things beyond the mere natural. They needed to see Jesus in the midst of their slavery. And that's what Paul is trying to help the slave understand. It is about Jesus Christ and being a good witness for him. That's why he says, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as a God pleaser, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with all goodwill as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's slave or free. Ah, now Paul is transitioning. Listen, slave, God has not forgotten you. You will be judged and so will your master. Look what he says in verse nine. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Paul rebuking the abusive master to help the abusive master understand your conduct needs to be for the glory of God. And who knows, maybe if an abusive master over slaves who comes to know Christ begins to understand it's wrong of me to treat a slave the way I've been treating them. Maybe they might even let them go. True change from the gospel perspective comes from the inside out where God gets a hold of your life in whatever circumstance you're facing. And here in this circumstance is where somebody's a slave and somebody's a slave owner. And Paul is keeping the main thing, the main thing, which is not an endorsement of slavery at all. It's an endorsement of being a bondservant of Jesus Christ, whether you're free or enslaved. That's what brings about real change. And he does the same thing when he addresses elsewhere the idea of being married to an unbeliever. Stay married to the unbeliever unless the unbelieving spouse leaves you. Maybe through your good behavior, you might win over the one who is not a believer. So, of course, people want to take things out of context. Remember, before quoting the Bible, know the Bible that you're quoting. Before quoting the Bible, know the Bible you're quoting. Know the context that people want to twist and pervert and recreate God in their own image. Remember this, the next time somebody says to you, well, the Bible endorses slavery. No, the Bible endorses wholehearted, complete surrender to Jesus Christ, no matter what circumstance you're in. And there is a difference between living in a free society where slavery is no longer endorsed. Hallelujah to that. Can I get an amen for that? And living in a society where you might not have the ability just yet to speak to the ungodly issue, but Christ-like behavior brings a godliness into an ungodly situation and change comes from the inside out. 
Now, this is not the only time Paul addresses slavery. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, look what he says. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. The idea of reverencing God. This is not a something's going bump in the night, the boogeyman's out there ready to scare me. That's not what fear of the Lord means. To fear the Lord means to respect him, to honor him, to cherish him, to give him his rightful honor to obey him in all that he's taught. But with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. The slave needed to know that, otherwise they'd lose their witness for Christ. It is about the witness for Christ at your workplace, in your family. You might find yourself in a dire set of circumstances. You're not loving your spouse only because your spouse is worthy of it. You're loving your spouse because it's as unto the Lord. You're not serving at your workplace because your boss deserves it or the company deserves it or Lord forbid because you're going to get a bonus for good behavior. That should be kudos. That should be bonus stuff. That should be additional to why you're really serving. Though the Bible presents the purest of all motives. Understanding Jesus as present in whatever circumstance you're facing, the thing that can cut through the worst of circumstances, that you treat people in a way that is different than the way the rest of the world treats them, the way the rest of the world treats you. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. A slave had no inheritance. They had no possessions. They lost all of it. So Paul is speaking to the slave and helping them understand you have an eternal inheritance. God has not slighted you. He has not forgotten you. Your inheritance is not of this life. It's not of this world. The gospel is applicable to you who are enslaved. It's applicable to you who are enslaving those who shouldn't be enslaved. God needed to communicate to those who would otherwise have lost heart, those who were being treated harshly by godless people who didn't know Christ or by members of the nighttime Bible reading society who said that they knew Christ and were misusing people and abusing people. Paul was keeping the main thing, the main thing, and preaching Christ so that no matter what the circumstance was that someone found themselves in when they received a letter from the Apostle Paul, they knew that it's all about Jesus and Jesus is sufficient. And no matter what circumstance you find yourself in the thick of, it must be about Jesus. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. God sees it all. And this pertained to the wicked slave owner. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so God is speaking to the slave, he's speaking to the slave master, and he's keeping the main thing, the main thing, that through it all, whatever you face, whatever I face, whatever circumstance you find yourself in, whatever relationship you find yourself in, 
Faithfulness to God is what it's all about. Serving God and treating people with love and honor and respect is what it's all about. And if those people who are members of the Nighttime Bible Reading Society really wanted to know what God's definitive statement about slavery is all about, then they would understand that the cross is where God sets people in bondage free. That's the real issue that every single one of us is a slave to sin until Jesus is accepted as Savior and God and Master and Lord. He sets those who are in bondage to sin free. And if you want to know God's opinion about human slavery, about what he thinks about those who have been enslaved by mere mortals, mere mortal being abused and enslaved by mere mortal, then read the other portions of the Bible, such as the book of Exodus, where God took two and a half million slaves, the Jewish people, who are under the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, and set them free. Because God did not like his people to be enslaved. God does not look favorably upon slavery. God does not look favorably upon those who are enslaved. And so if you want to know God's opinion about a mere mortal enslaving another mere mortal, look at the book of Exodus and you will see that God hates it so much that there are times when God has to intervene and set his people free. And God does not judge with partiality. If you read the story, you know that Pharaoh eventually got his just desserts. And so did the Egyptian people. And so in the midst of you facing whatever it is that you're facing, understand that God, he sees it all. He wants you to keep the main thing, the main thing, which is not just your circumstance. It's God in the midst of the circumstance. What we need to understand about Luke chapter 22 is that this is not a passage about the use of force or the non-use of force, about weapons, whether or not they should be used or not used. It's about the violent transformation in the life and the ministry of Jesus. It's about the violent death of Jesus now being closer in the life and the ministry of Jesus and the consequences that now the apostles could begin to expect if they were to remain faithful to him. That's why Jesus is using the violent imagery to help them understand that a transition in his ministry was underway, and yet they were to remain diligent and vigilant and faithful, not waiting for the approval of mere mortals, but preaching the biblical Jesus, teaching the biblical Jesus teachings, helping everybody have an opportunity to turn from falsehood, to turn from a life of bondage to a life of freedom. And the sooner that you and I get over the idea of not being appreciated and not being applauded for teaching and preaching with humility and courage, the full counsel of God, the more God can use imperfect people to proclaim the truths about a perfect God. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or 
on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Thank you.